This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Welcome back to the International Socialist Alternative's World to Win. I'm Toya. This week, unfortunately, Yara wasn't able to join me, but she'll be back next time. As always, you may be watching this on YouTube, but we're also on podcasts, so check us out there. This week, we have a very important episode where we're talking about the situation of the CCP regime in China. Now, we have three guests who are Marxist activists who are either active on the ground um, in China or they have been forced to flee the country. Um, And because of security concerns, some of them aren't able to show their faces with us today. So to get us started, I'm talking with um, Lance who is a writer for ChinaWorker.info, which is the International Socialist Alternative's um, Chinese website. So Lance, let's start. Um, China has announced plans to limit access to abortion. Now, a few weeks ago, we did talk about um, abortion access, um, not just, you know, in regards to uh, uh, people losing access, but also some gains that we saw um, in Mexico. So if you missed that episode, make sure you check it out. Um, But, you know, reproductive justice is an issue that is affecting people across the globe. Um, And so, like I said, in China, they're they're announcing plans to limit this access. Now, according um, uh, to what's going on there, this is reportedly linked to the population crisis and the the falling of, of birth rates. Um, But can you explain to us what exactly is happening? Yes, the so-called Communist Party, or CCP, wants to restrict the right of abortion. But the Chinese dictatorship will do this in a more opaque, indirect way. It is unlikely to adopt a formal ban. On 27th of September, the government released the so-called guidelines, saying it would seek to reduce abortions for non-medical purposes. There have not been concrete details in addition to only one sentence talking about abortions, and the rest of the guidelines talk about combating sexism in the workplace, improving educational opportunities for women, and so on. On paper, the guidelines aim to advocate gender equality, but there have been huge gaps between official rhetoric and reality. It is most likely that CCP wants to stimulate the very low birth rate by restricting abortions by creating red tape and bureaucratic obstacles. There was the case in Jiangxi province a few years ago. The local government imposed a ban on abortion for women more than 14 weeks pregnant, except cases of the women's serious health problems, fetal abnormality, divorce or widowhood. This was done in name of preventing sexy elective abortions, because many parents in China want boys instead of girls, and the case of aborting female fetuses are very high. Under these rules, women must have signed approval from three medical professionals confirming an abortion is medically necessary before any procedure. This regulation is still valid today, and similar restrictions also existed in nine other provinces. These restrictive policies also extend to contraceptives. Ten years ago, Fujian provincial government required people to register their real names when buying contraceptive pills in pharmacies. At that time, the official media criticized this move as pointless, but now some women, including Chinese feminists, worry about potential limits on contraception related to the new guidelines. So why are they doing this? 
As you mentioned, China is now undergoing a population crisis and falling birth rate. China has a long history of having family planning policies to control the growth of the Chinese population. The longest-lasting one is the one-child policy, from 1979 to 2015, under which each couple was allowed to give birth to only one child, or the women would be forced to have abortions, and the couples would have to pay fines up to ten times their annual income. Also, after capitalist restoration, a huge section of public services was privatized. House prices in the most developed cities are now over 40 times their average annual income. There is no free healthcare or education. Pensions and unemployment insurance are extremely low. All these factors have led to a sharp fall in the birth rate. Young people cannot afford to get married and start a family. More people got divorced last year than got married. This is a major crisis for the CCP and the Chinese capitalism because of decline in the workforce. China's working age population fell by 40 million in the past decade, and it will fall by an additional 35 million in the next five years. In the context of, of China-U.S. imperialist Cold War, the decrease of workforce means it will be very hard for China to outcompete the U.S., which in turn. Will damage the legitimacy of CCP's one-party dictatorial rule. So the CCP is looking to further restrict women's rights and bodily autonomy to reverse the decline of China's population. We've talked previously on our show about other attacks by the Chinese dictatorship on feminism.、Um, this is in regards to the Me Too movement. But could you explain more broadly speaking the general crackdown of women's rights in China? Gender inequality in China has exacerbated in the last four decades, which coincides with the return to capitalism. Average income for females was 77.5 percent of males in 1990, but this figure slipped to 67.3 percent in 2010. In the Global Gender Gap Report 2021, China ranks. 107th out of the 156 countries surveyed, and it is the worst performer in health and survival. Influenced by the general trend globally, and with the oppression of women under Chinese capitalism increasing, feminist consciousness is rising in China. Since Me Too spread to China, and encouraged women to speak out on social media, it has been revealed that. 75% of female students have been sexually harassed. In many cases, the perpetrators are their professors or other men in positions of power, and many more victims dare to expose their sexual predators, with some of them having to resign or being dismissed. The CCP fears the growing support for feminism, as it fears all social processes outside its control. And the CCP is afraid its policy aims for the economy and to challenge the U.S. globally are threatened, because feminism challenges the patriarchal capitalist power structure. Therefore, CCP is promoting the traditional nuclear family and cracking down on feminist circles, because the feminist movement today is more developed in the West. CCP used this fact to accuse feminism of an intrigue of foreign forces. And whip up nationalism and patriotism. Also, to reinforce the nationalist war warrior diplomacy, 
CCP wants to emphasize masculinity to show its might, so feminism is attacked. Thanks so much, Lance. I have one last question for you. You know, alongside the attacks that we're seeing on women's rights, we're also seeing crackdowns on LGBTQ groups. Um, is this, in your opinion, tied to the same logic? Yes, the crackdowns on LGBTQ groups are also about promoting the nuclear family and attempting to suppress all self-organization of the masses to prevent them from evolving into a movement to overthrow the CCP. Several LGBTQ organizations in China have cooperated with foreign embassies, so they have been targeted and attacked by the CCP and its nationalist supporters. Although CCP's official stance on LGBTQ appears neutral, and reads, don't support, don't encourage, and don't oppose. The dictatorship has adopted several recent measures attacking LGBTQ rights. Notably, in 2016 and 2017, CCP issued a ban on so-called abnormal sexual relationships, including LGBTQ presence on television. Most LGBTQ movement and organizations in China have chosen depoliticized approaches as a protection of themselves from being persecuted. But since the shutdown of Shanghai Pride, one of the annual LGBT Pride events in China, it is much clearer that depoliticization doesn't work. LGBTQ groups have to unite with women's rights activists, but also a wider layer of working-class people and the oppressed. Only international democratic socialism can offer a real alternative so inequality, sexism, and discrimination will be eliminated in both theory and practice. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk to another one of our guests, Lee. And for those who are on YouTube, just a reminder, Lee is not going to be on camera um, for their protection. But I want to start talking about um, the climate. So we have the big COP26 um, coming up, which the International Socialist Alternative is planning for. Um, so make sure you check out how you can get involved with us there. Um, but, you know, China itself has had a huge role in climate change, considering that it's one of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases globally. Um, and now what we're seeing is severe power outages in China while the government is increasing actually coal production, um, which we all know is something that we should, you know, globally be trying to decrease. Um, it's not by any means what the world needs right now. So Lee, can you talk to us a little bit about the situation um, with the environment in China? Well, these are the worst power cuts in China for at least a decade, with 20 provinces suffering outages. And they're likely to continue for a few months at least. Uh, some factories are on a three-day week, and the global supply chain is being started and stopped by provincial bureaucrats with power being cut out with sometimes less than one hour notice. Not only will this affect the recovery of the economy in China and world capitalism as a whole, if you think of Tesla and Apple having its major production centers there, but it's also going to threaten critical industries like food supply and production in China, especially if cold storage is impacted. But most importantly, this has had a political effect on the masses, especially in the Northeast. Blackouts, people having to walk 30 stories with no lifts, no heating or cooking. Our comrades in China are actually reporting the development of a type of localist consciousness in the Northeast of China, an anti-Beijing mood. They have, uh, they have a feeling that they're always getting the worst deal, especially as the winter rolls in and the Northeast is the coldest region in China. This has actually happened once before in Hebei province, where the Ch CCP tried to meet air pollution targets by shutting down the heating in the winter several years ago. This actually caused some people in the northeast to freeze to death. 
This has also enforced or reinforced the sort of class consciousness. Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei CFO, was released from detention Canada. When she came back to China, she was given a huge red carpet welcome. Many people online were complaining that in Shenzhen and other cities where Huawei was influential, they turned on the lights of her despite the power cuts. Huge laser light shows and LED panels with text welcoming her back to China while the average working Chinese was having to suffer from blackouts. The Chinese regime is having to reopen and even create new coal mines, increase import of coal from Russia, and ramp up the use of old, heavily polluting coal to meet this nationwide power shortage. In Inner Mongolia, they've ordered an expansion of 100 million tons of coal. This has meant that coal prices have actually doubled in 2021 alone. This has also led to concessions in the new Cold War. For example, the CCP has backtracked on the ban on Australian coal. Ultimately, Beijing commands a very unwieldy bureaucracy full of small provincial bureaucrats that have their own incentives, often GDP growth and profits. When the hammer came down from the central government to meet the climate targets, many local provinces raced to try and meet that deadline, thus the massive power cuts. Now, these power cuts are causing severe disruption to the economy, so they've gone on a coal spree. This will damage Xi Jinping's international standing during COP26 and cause more people to question the credibility of his climate pledges, which anyways are inadequate. Another major reason for the energy shortage is the surge in the coal price on a completely unregulated market, which is causing power plants to lose money because electricity price is regulated. So the plants have been running down their coal stocks in order to cut losses. These are the clear results of China's ultra-repressive bureaucratic capitalism. Now that the CCP has changed its policy and deregulated electricity prices, this has been hailed as a big victory for quote-unquote liberalization. Ultimately, this means that ordinary households will have to pay more. Just the recklessness of the rich and the capitalist class in regards to energy is so annoying. It reminds me, like we talked about a couple of weeks back, um, maybe more months back at this point, what happened in Texas when the power outages went out. But you see all these high rise office buildings that still have their lights on. It's like, you know, working people. It doesn't matter if we're without electricity. It doesn't matter if we're cold. It doesn't it doesn't matter if our food is spoiling. It's just it's a completely unfair distribution of of the resources that we're seeing. Um, but also, what we you know, we have a situation in Hong Kong as well, which we have talked about on previous episodes, um, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Um, you know, the trade unions are, are being essentially shut down, um, and we're seeing endless repre- repression continue um, for years on end. Can you tell us a little bit, Lee, about the situation in Hong Kong currently? Yeah, of course. So the HKCTU, which was the main trade union confederation with 93 affiliated trade unions, has voted to dissolve. This is a vicious attack from the regime, the state media, and the Hong Kong puppet government. The regime understands fundamentally that workers' organizations are the most powerful and essential in the fight for democratic rights. They want to stamp out all ability for the masses to get organized against their ultra-oppressive dictatorship. As socialists, democratic rights are key to being able to organize. Without the right to strike, to pamphlet, to demonstrate, there is no movement towards socialism. But unfortunately, we have also have to recognize that the mainstream trade unions didn't put up a fight. The Confederation of Trade Unions, the main pro-democracy one, and the PTU, the the teachers union, both dissolved themselves without struggle. In total, 29 trade unions have ceased to exist this year. 
In their entire history as trade unions, they've never really led struggle, and so they have no point of reference for how to conduct a fight back against such an ultra-repressive regime. At the 2019 democracy movement's high point, the masses moved to demand a general strike on a number of occasions. The HKCTU was barely visible. It did not initiate or do anything to organize the mood for a strike. Its response was to tell workers to ask their bosses for a day off work. The failure of the mass strikes have really developed as strikes rather than messy individual days off work discredited the idea of a strike. People cooled towards the idea because they felt, we tried this, it didn't work. A great opportunity to build real trade unions and take the struggle up to a different level was in fact lost. Well, we do have something to look out for, though, Lee. In December, I see that there's going to be elections happening um, in Hong Kong. What do you think the significance of these is going to be? Well, the election date is the 19th of December for the Hong Kong's so-called parliamentary elections to the Legislative Council. This is a completely powerless assembly, but it provided a platform for the democracy struggle in the past. Uh, this time, though, the election is completely rigged and all candidates must be approved by a multi-layered vetting system ultimately controlled by the state security agencies. The pro-CCP establishment will win a landslide, but the new legislature will be illegitimate in the eyes of most people who have experienced mass repression. It's very likely that there is going to be massive abstentions. A widespread, spontaneous boycott is probably going to happen. But no individual or organization can call an actual boycott, which is punishable by three years in prison. Uh, to compare, in the neighboring Chinese territory of Macau two months ago, there was an election uh, to their legislature in which all the pro-democracy candidates, candidates were per. It was the lowest vote on record. This is a foretaste of what's going to happen in Hong Kong. Most pro-democracy parties are also boycotting the election, which they wouldn't be allowed to contest in any ways as most opposition leaders are already in prison following the arrest of the 47 pro-democracy legislators, legislators and activists. It's also important to remember that the Hong Kong elections were never fully democratic in the past. At its best, only 50% were elected by the voters, the other 50% put there by various rigged business interests. It is now more than ever important to conclude that democracy in Hong Kong cannot be achieved in one city, but has to be a part of a China-wide and international mass struggle for democratic rights and against capitalism. So we've talked about social movements in China, we've talked about, you know, uh, what's going on with climate. I want to change gears a little bit here with Vincent, who is our third guest on today. Um, Evergrande is a big property company um, in China, which is collapsing. What does this mean for the economy? Well, Evergrande is a very big, very serious development. Uh, economists are talking about a tipping point for China's economy. In other words, there'll be no going back to the situation before. Uh, it's not about just one company, uh, even though Evergrande is a very big company. It's about the whole property sector in China, which is mired in debt. Um, property and housing construction has been the motor for China's economic growth for the past 20 years, and now that's coming to an end. So this poses several questions. Uh, how will it end? Will it be like Japan in the 1990s? Uh, will a huge bubble burst and take down the whole economy. It also raises the question, what can replace housing as the main driver of growth in China? And because we're talking about the world's second biggest economy, the main driver of global growth for the last 10 years, then the crisis in China's property sector is a crisis for global capitalism too. Uh, and some facts put this into perspective. There's, there's never been a property boom, I would say, 
bubble on these lines before. It's unprecedented. Um, the property sector accounts for 29% of China's GDP. And the US, the comparable figure is around 6% of GDP. And even at its peak, before the 2008 crash, the housing bubble in the US accounted for 9% of GDP. So we see that China's property bubble is in the league of its own. The combined debt of China's property companies is now 5 trillion US dollars. So Evergrande, with a debt of 300 billion uh, US dollars, is just the tip of a very big iceberg. Uh, tens of millions of ordinary Chinese have been priced out of the housing market. It's for financial speculation. And one-fifth of all the housing units in China are empty. It's an absolutely staggering figure. You have enough empty housing in China to house the population of Germany two times over. These houses have been bought for the purposes of speculation, not to live in. This is also shown by another statistic, and that is that one-fifth of all homeowners own more than one house. And many CCP officials, that's the so-called Communist Party, are involved in this property speculation. So Xi Jinping's government are now pursuing a high-risk strategy towards Evergrande and the other highly indebted property companies. Officially, at the level of the central government, the line is that they're not going to bail Evergrande out. Now, we'll see if the government loses its nerve. Uh, it's a very dangerous situation because if there's one thing that's certain about a financial bubble, it's that it can't be controlled. So housing sales in China have already collapsed by a third in September this year compared to September a year ago. And that shows that the Evergrande crisis is beginning to ripple through the whole property market. Um, the CCP is saying that they're prepared to let Evergrande collapse in order to set an example to the other highly indebted companies that they won't be bailed out. The government thinks they can ring-fence the wider economy, the banking system, uh, to prevent Evergrande's collapse from becoming a systemic crisis. Well, we will see if that is the case or not. It's an extremely risky strategy. Um, and it shows how desperate, really, the Chinese government's position is. Uh, if they don't um, do this, if they, if they bail out companies like Evergrande, um, then the debt mountain will just keep growing and they risk an even bigger collapse at a later stage. Xi Jinping has a new slogan called Common Prosperity, which we're hearing a lot about. Some say that the Chinese government is actually shifting to the left and taking measures against some big companies in the private sectors. In your opinion, is it an actual leftward turn? Yeah, well, it's, it's not a left turn. Uh, and it's certainly not socialism. What the CCP is trying to do um, is uh, they're trying to manage capitalism. And Xi Jinping is trying to curb or rein in some sectors of the capitalist economy that pose a potential threat to the wider economy or more specifically to the system of authoritarian rule. Above all, the CCP is afraid of a financial crisis. And that's because China's debt levels are now off the charts. Uh, there's been a crackdown on the big tech companies like Alibaba, Tencent, 
which account for 40% of China's GDP now. These companies are a mirror image of the so-called FANG, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, uh, etc. And Xi Jinping has been uh, cracking the whip with a series of new regulatory controls um, with a lot of commentators in the Western capitalist countries saying, we need to follow Xi Jinping's example. Uh, we should be doing the same sort of thing that China is doing. And this is because the tech companies everywhere have grown too powerful. Uh, and some of their practices are actually a threat to the wider interests of the capitalist class. Um, it's, it's partly about the huge amounts of data that these companies command. Uh, especially in China, which is a, a vicious dictatorship, monitors the whole population. They can't have private companies which control even more data than the dictatorship itself. But the main factor is the fear of a financial crisis. Um, and a good example is Ant Group, which is owned by Alibaba. Ant developed as a payments platform, but it's morphed into a gigantic financial company with 1.2 billion account holders. Now, that, this puts uh, Ant in the position where potentially it could roll over government policies. It could challenge the authority of the central bank and the financial authorities in China. So it had to be cut down to size. The catchphrase, common prosperity, has been adopted because the government uh, can sense the massive discontent that's welling up in society. People in China can't afford to have children. They can't afford a home because the housing market is the world's most expensive. They can't afford to get sick because there's no insurance. The, the welfare system has been downsized and privatized as a result of capitalist restoration. So there is an explosive mood developing in society. Uh, young people en masse are, are identifying with the new trend, the idea of lying flat, tanking which means getting out of the rat race, that China's capitalist way of life is just too high pressure, too brutal. So young people are discussing ways to opt out. And lying flat means not buying a house, uh, means not getting married or having kids, uh, not fighting to land a high pressure job with one of the tech companies. And it's an expression of massive alienation from CCP style capitalism. And she's promoting common prosperity but it's all quite empty there are no or very few at least concrete policies and we can say uh, with certainty this will not benefit working class people um, especially in a dictatorship where trade unions and workers independent organizations are banned uh, it's significant what Xi Jinping said recently on the topic of welfareism which is a political swear word in the eyes of the CCP and the capitalists in China today. She made a speech in August um, on the question of common prosperity. Uh, but the key part was what he said, and I'm going to quote, that China must resolutely prevent falling into the trap of welfareism and raising lazy people. These were Xi Jinping's exact words. In the same speech, he also said that common prosperity is something long-term, it won't happen overnight. Well, 
This is very similar to what capitalist politicians and especially the kind of new breed of populist politicians that we're seeing emerge around the world. This is this is very similar to what they're saying. Uh, yeah, we know there are problems. They have to be dealt with. But you have to wait. We're working on it. It won't happen overnight. And of course it won't because their system cannot deliver what workers need. It cannot deliver the basics for a decent life. And that's why we need to organize mass struggle. That's why we need socialist policies uh, and we need to struggle to overthrow their system. So this term new Cold War is something that we've talked a lot about on our show. Um, and Xi Jinping and Joe Biden are finally holding direct talks at a virtual summit before the end of the year. So thinking about this new Cold War that we talk about uh, between China and the U.S. and now the fact that, you know, the two presidents are actually, uh, you know, going to have a talk, a direct talk. Um, do these uh, uh, types of things signal that something's about to change? Um, maybe the new Cold War, new Cold War is ending. Yeah, well, there are factions in in both the U.S. and Chinese regimes that would prefer a certain de-escalation in the conflict. Uh, Xi Jinping has the Beijing Winter Olympics coming up in February, and that puts a certain pressure on the Chinese side to tone down the Cold War rhetoric a bit. Uh, we, that is ISA, have explained that the US-China Cold War, or new Cold War, although it's not that new anymore, um, it's a long runner. Uh, it will define the coming decades. Uh, and, and, and therefore, inevitably, there will be ebbs and flows. Uh, we set up the Solidarity Against Repression in China and Hong Kong campaign, uh, partly to organize solidarity to support workers' struggles, um, to support democracy struggles, not just in Hong Kong, but in uh, the whole of China, uh, but also to educate and to warn uh, within the left, within the international labor movement, not to get sucked into the Cold War as defense attorneys for either side. The Chinese dictatorship is also an imperialist government. It is plundering Africa, Asia and Latin America of natural resources. It's saddling poor countries with unpayable debts. Uh, now, we know that the West, that US imperialism has been doing this for a lot longer. But that doesn't make what the, China, uh, what the Chinese regime is doing a lesser evil. Uh, as Lenin taught us, the, the labor movement has to oppose all imperialism. Whether we're in a phase of de-escalation right now remains to be seen. Uh, if this is the case, it will be, unfortunately, only be a very temporary phase. The general trend is towards escalation and proliferation. The conflict over Taiwan is getting hotter. Uh, recent statements by President Tsai Ing-wen have further antagonized the Chinese regime. Her defense minister recently said that our airplanes are not made of plastic. Uh, this was an implied threat that if China keeps ramping up the levels of its air excursions over Taiwanese airspace, that Taiwan will retaliate. Um, and, and, and right now, there's also a potential escalation taking place on China's border with India in the Himalayas. Uh, so that's tens of thousands of Chinese and Indian troops facing each other over the most remote, coldest battlefield in the world. 
Now, US imperialism has had some secondary successes, at least in, in diplomatic terms, in knitting together various coalitions against China. Uh, Biden recently hosted the first ever Quad Summit um, with the leaders of Australia, India and Japan. And Quad is a kind of anti-China Eastern version of NATO. Uh, there's also the new AUKUS Pact involving Australia, Britain and the US. Just last week, uh, five navies, including the US and Canada, took part in military maneuvers in the South China Sea. Now that's a provocation, uh, that's military harassment to put pressure on the Chinese regime. But the CCP's policies, uh, its own imperialist role in various conflicts, such as Taiwan, such as what it's doing in the conflict with India, and its role in the South China Sea, have been a diplomatic gift to Biden and the US, allowing the US side to present what it's doing in defensive terms, that it's protecting international law, it's standing up for the rights of weaker nations, etc. Now, we know that this is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy from both sides involved in this conflict. As socialists, we condemn this imperialist conflict. The high cost of all this saber-rattling. It costs $6.5 million a day just to operate one of the aircraft carrier battle groups that are now in the South China Sea. That money could be spent on vaccines. That could build hundreds of health clinics in Africa. Um, the, uh, the, the, none of the governments involved in this conflict, not the US, not China, can be trusted. They're all a threat to our democratic rights, to our economic security, and to the future of the planet. So one final question for you, Vincent. Next year is the key five-yearly Communist Party Congress when Xi Jinping is expected to extend his rule to become a lifetime dictator. Do you think this is going to happen? Well, nothing is certain. Uh, the situation is becoming more and more unstable. Um, Xi Jinping's regime wants to project strength, ruthlessness, infallibility, but the truth is very different. Uh, <clears throat> nevertheless, the most likely outcome is that she, on present trends, will be sworn in next year for a third term, and his plan is, is to stay in power for life. It's a transformation of one-party dictatorship into one-man dictatorship. At the same time, there's a power struggle. Actually, it's uh, in plural. It's power struggles raging within the Chinese ruling class and the CCP state. This is partly... Uh, about the anti-Xi factions uh, who oppose his concentration of power. But they don't seem to be strong enough to prevent a third term. Uh, they could, however, cause Xi enough problems to force other concessions. A lot can happen in the next year. Uh, one of my comrades used the expression mosquito bites to describe this process. The anti-Xi factions are not powerful enough to mount a frontal challenge, but they can make his life very uncomfortable. Uh, these struggles reflect the crisis in society. Uh, the regime is split on a great number of issues. The Congress next year is not a Congress with delegates discussing alternative proposals and voting. Everything is stitched up in advance. Uh, around 40 individuals are involved in the horse trading that decides things. Uh, and, and this is she's inner circle and some of the top elders of the CCP clans and super-rich families. It's akin to how feudal regimes worked. Um, 
Xi's opponents fear that the over-concentration of power um, could lead to revolutionary explosions in the future. They also fear that this increases the likelihood of serious miscalculations or mistakes. Uh, that could be in the Cold War, or it could be in the case of Evergrande and the property market crisis. Um, so uh, the, these anti-Xi layers, they want to return to Deng Xiaoping's collective leadership model, um, where the dictatorship uh, was exercised by a committee rather than one man. They don't want bourgeois democracy. Uh, none of the CC, uh, CCP factions want that because they fear chaos, uh, a collapse into anarchy. Uh, Deng's mode of collective dictatorship um, was developed to prevent the rise of a new Mao. Uh, now, she is not a new Mao. Um, Mao did not rule over a capitalist China. Uh, that's the fundamental difference. Um, capitalism, of course, came later. It came under Deng Xiaoping's rule. But she is trying to revive some of the phraseology and some of the superficial trappings of Mao's time. And this is partly to support his push for more totalitarian control. And, and this is partly, and this is a very important factor, to stoke nationalism. Every capitalist ruling class is resorting to more and more nationalism, and China, of course, is no exception. With the economy facing unprecedented tests now, as Evergrande shows, Xi's next years will be a lot more turbulent and his regime is facing pressures on every front. The economy, the decoupling with the US and the West, mass discontent in society, the population crisis and the Cold War. So socialists uh, should count on big movements developing in China in the next period, especially workers' struggles. And this can have global repercussions. To close off, we're going to show the latest video of our international solidarity campaign against repression in China and Hong Kong. China's dictator, Xi Jinping, has launched no fewer than 14 different crackdowns this year. There's a crackdown on LGBTQ people and a ban on sissy boy pop stars and celebrities in the media. LGBTQ online groups and websites are banned and some universities are compiling registers of gay students. Homosexuality is effectively criminalized again. There's a crackdown on private education companies, on computer games, on learning English in schools, as well as big tech companies like Alibaba, Tencent, and TikTok owner ByteDance. This has wiped out around $3 trillion from Chinese stocks this year. C has also criticized excessive income and said that billionaires have to give back to society. Xi's new populist turn has alarmed some capitalist commentators. The Financial Times asked the question, is China becoming uninvestable? George Soros says, Xi Jinping is turning to Maoism. Also, some pseudo's lefts are excited by Xi's new policies. Those who defend the Chinese regime's totalitarian policies in Xinjiang and Hong Kong sees the latest policies 
as vindication that Xi Jinping's regime stands for socialism. But this is not socialism or anti-capitalism. It is not left populism, but right-wing populism. Xi wants to save Chinese capitalism and his own dictatorship. Other capitalist governments, most clearly Biden in the U.S., are imposing tighter regulation and higher taxes on big companies. They are abandoning the old neoliberal policies because of the terrible crisis of the capitalist system. Xi uses the method of crackdowns and stronger government's control to achieve a similar outcome. Xi's slogan of common prosperity is not a socialist or communist. This is a Confucian concept. Common prosperity was a program of Sun Yat-sen's Kuomintang. Socialists stressed the need to overthrow the power of capital and to establish democratic working-class control over the economy. Xi Jinping stresses that his policies do not mean killing the rich to help the poor. Xi's campaign combines some populist attacks on big private companies, wealthy celebrities, and parasitic sectors like the private tutoring industry, with right-wing homophobic, anti-feminist, and ultra-nationalist propaganda. Homosexuality and effeminate men are Western ideas and trends that harm China. According to the government, likewise, the democratic struggle in Hong Kong is a Western conspiracy. Beijing has vowed to crush the unpatriotic elements in Hong Kong with brutal repression. In Hong Kong, trade unions are effectively smashed, and their leaders are imprisoned. Why is Xi Jinping doing this? The answer is that Chinese capitalism faces a serious crisis. Actually, not one, but many. There's a population crisis, which is much worse than even the government statistics show. The birth rate has fallen sharply. Last year, twice as many children were born in India than in China, while these countries have roughly the same population. There is a debt crisis, heavily connected to China's poverty bubble. Housing in China is unaffordable, even for many middle-class people. The cost of housing and education are major reasons why Chinese people can't afford to have children. This is caused by capitalism and its speculation in property prices and the downsizing of public services. A government survey shows that a big majority of Chinese families spend one third of their income on their children's education. But Xi's regime scapegoats. Western-inspired homosexuality and erosion of traditional family values for the decline in the birth rate. The economy is also in crisis. China's economy contracted in July, showing the post-pandemic recovery is also running out of gas. A debt and population crunch could push China into a Japanese scenario. Japan's economy today is the same size as it was in 1995. Another crisis for Xi's regime is the U.S.-China Cold War. Within China's ruling class, there's a growing resistance that they are losing. U.S. anti-China policies are inflicting real pain. The biggest crisis for Xi Jinping is the growing discontent of workers, young people, and increasingly also China's middle class. 
Xi Jinping wants to secure his coronation as dictator for life at the key congress in November 2022. He is desperate to build up his regime's support for this event. This can mean even more repression and attacks on workers' strikes. Hong Kong activists, Uyghur Muslim in Xinjiang, LGBTQ people, and feminists in China. We need your support. You can find us on social media. Solidarity against repression in China and Hong Kong. We need solidarity from workers and students around the world. You can also become a monthly financial sustainer and donate to the link on the screen. And our last part of the show, which is always my favorite, is the shout out of the week. Now we've shouted out this thing a few times, but it's hugely important.、Um, next week we are not having an episode of World to Win. Instead, we are going live from Glasgow on Saturday,、um, the sixth of November, for the International Socialist Alternatives International、um, COP26 rally. It's called "Capitalism Is Killing the Planet: Fight for a Socialist Change," and you'll be hearing from socialists, climate campaigners, worker activists from all over the world. Yara will be there.、Um, so if you're in Europe, if you're in anywhere, and you can get to Europe,、um, you know, make sure you、uh, meet up with us there. Saturday, November six, is going to be a major day of mass protests. Um, and the United Nations Climate Change Conference is taking pl- place in Central Glasgow.、Um, climate campaigners, youth trade union activists, and many others will be gathering to send out a clear message that we demand action for the climate now. And this will be followed by our major international rally at 5 p.m. Glasgow time, which is 11 a.m. New York time, which is where I'm at. I'm not in New York, but it's my time zone. I'm in Boston. So while world leaders and big business will meet to talk, you know, big for the cameras about the climate crisis and everything that they're going to do about it, really what they're not going to do about it, we know from experience、um, that this won't be followed by meaningful action. And so, you know, what we say is the capitalist system places the drives for profit above anything else. And that means that the poorest and the most exploited people of the world are the ones who face the real consequences of this escalating emergency. And so we have to build a movement that is anti-capitalist, and it's fighting for revolutionary socialist change across the world in order to target the capitalist polluters. You know, and we talk a lot on this show about、uh, the problems of the world,、um, but what we're saying is these are the problems of the world, and in order to fix them, we need to fight for socialist change. And so our movement must fight to bring the world's resources and the wealth into the hands of the global majority, as opposed to the global minority, in order to truly end the system of driving the climate, the system of driving、uh, the climate into crisis. So again, if you are going to be in Scotland, if you are in Scotland, if you are able to get to Scotland. Come to the International Socialist Alternative Rally to hear from speakers that are engaged in climate struggles and fights for democratic、um, and workers' rights across the globe. Or you can join us here on our live stream on YouTube or Facebook. Our link is in the description below. Unfortunately, I won't be able to be there, so I'll see you guys when you get back、um, in a few weeks. Thanks for tuning in. 
This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!